There is a city, the writer of Hebrews says, whose designer and builder is God. There is a heavenly city that is and is coming. There is a city of unimaginable glory and splendor, a city filled with innumerable angels in festal gathering where Christ reigns as king. That is a present reality that is now in heaven and that we long to see and that will, in God's good time, come to earth. There is a city whose designer and builder is God. The New Testament writers pick up on this idea of the city of God in several passages, and we will look at those today, but they all go back to the prophet Ezekiel, who spent the majority of his prophetic life dealing with the city of God. That's what we will look at this morning. But what you need to know is that I help you kind of tune your ears to hear the words of Ezekiel, is that the city of God does not have universal membership. All roads do not lead to Rome, as the saying goes. All religious paths do not lead to the same city. That anyone who reads scripture is and thinks that that is what scripture says is a fool. All roads do not lead to the city of God. It does not have universal membership. And the problem is that man is wicked, desperately wicked. And there is no place for evil in God's city. There's not one corner in God's city where evil can dwell. And that is the cold, hard truth of the prophets. But God did not leave man there. And he sent his prophets to preach the way of hope. You know, we've seen the same thing in Isaiah. We've seen it in Jeremiah. God is sending the prophets to preach the way of hope. We saw that in, in, in the book of Samuel, first and second. And we saw that in Kings and Chronicles. God sending the prophets to warn the people, to warn his own wicked kings to repent, lest he destroy them. And these prophets functioned like watchmen. You know, in, in, the, in the ancient cities, there was watchmen who stood on the walls of the city. And they would look to see if, if any trouble was headed their way. They'd also be looking for, for uh, runners, for those who would bring messages to the city. It was said that a good watchman could actually identify the identity of the runner by his stride. So watchmen had to be skilled. They had to have good vision. And above all, they had to actually deliver the truth. Because if they didn't, the whole city could be destroyed. And we've just read together in the scripture reading and in our response to the scripture reading, the words that God gave to Ezekiel, that you are going to be a watchman for my city. And this is not just any light duty. As we saw both in in Ezekiel 3, which we read in our scripture reading, and also we responded when 
that call to be a watchman is repeated in Ezekiel 33 in the third part of the book. Ezekiel's to be a watchman, and if he does not warn clearly and give all the words that God gave to him to say, though his, God's wicked people will still be destroyed, but the blood he's going to require at Ezekiel's hands. And I shudder to think what that means at a spiritual level. But if Ezekiel warns them, he's innocent of the blood. And then the person's response is up to them, whether they reject the word and die in their wickedness or receive the word and are saved and delivered. So as you listen and as we share the gospel to an onlooking world, That's the decision point that you have to make. Will you hear the watchman's voice? That is, will you hear the word of God or will you reject it? Or what is so fashionable even in churches today, will you hear the part of the word of God that you like and ignore the part you don't? And I shudder as a minister of the gospel at what will come upon me if I do not deliver to you the whole counsel of God. And we'll see towards the end of this message how Paul picks up this watchman theme when he's handing over the ministry to the elders in Ephesus. And we're going to tie that in. And he talks about how he's innocent of the blood of all, for he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But the reality is that the kingdom of God is coming. His city is coming in a spiritual way it's here already and we'll unpack a little bit of that today but there's not universal membership if you want to be a member of god's eternal city you need to make the choice to heed the word of god and all that it calls you to do so that's where we're going this morning turn real quickly to page seven of your worship folder and I won't read the, the summary this morning, but I just want to show you a quick outline of the, of the prophet's uh, ministry. If you look at the brief literary outline, you see that uh, his whole pro- Ezekiel's whole prophetic ministry is placed into three parts. The first section from chapters 1 to 24 deal with prophecies and synacts about the destruction of God's City, which is at this time Jerusalem. Uh, you could say the destruction of his ancient city. And that whole section deals with visions and synacts of judgment and, and oracles, and we'll look at that this morning. The second section deals with prophecies against the enemies of God's city. So not only will God take down the wicked from his own people, but also the wicked people from the surrounding nations that were seeking the destruction of Israel. And they're going down too. But then in the third section, we read about visions of God's new city that is to come. And the New Testament writers pick up on that. So we will end the message today looking at how what Ezekiel was preaching about connects with our hope in the New Testament and church era. So that's where we are going this morning. The first point this morning 
of the message is this. God's ancient city had to be destroyed because she was defiled by sin. God's ancient city, that is Jerusalem, had to be destroyed because she was defiled by sin. So God called Ezekiel to be a messenger of doom. A messenger of doom to warn the Israelites that the end was coming. You know, Ezekiel is moving towards the end where the the temple is going to be destroyed in, in the latter days of Jerusalem as an ancient city. And all the other prophets had come through and warned the Elijahs and Elishas and the Isaiahs and so forth. And God's people continually rejected the word of God. In 722, the northern ten tribes were wiped out by Assyria. And now Babylon is coming onto the scene. During these days, Egypt and Babylon are warring for power. And Israel's caught in the middle. And Israel keeps wanting to go back to Egypt as kind of their, their big brother protector. And God's warning him, don't do that. Don't do that. And Babylon's coming on. But God's people again and again reject the word of the Lord. Now, Ezekiel is an interesting character. He comes from the upper crust of Israelite society. He came from a priestly family. And so he came from the well-to-do of that society. And that's interesting to me because God doesn't just call fishermen as leaders. He uses people from every imaginable social economic kind of strata to, from the fishermen all the way on up to be his agent when he chooses to raise them up. And the upper class was leading the way in the debauchery and in the sin. And the priestly class which will be an emphasis in Ezekiel, was leading in the way in the pagan idolatry and worship, even doing so in the temple of God itself. And so the end has come. God is finished with this ancient city. So in Ezekiel 7, we read, Now the end is upon you. And I will send my anger upon you. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. You see the emphasis. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult. And in this opening section of Ezekiel, one of the most horrific images is the image of the glory of God leaving the temple. And I don't have time to walk you through the whole pathway this morning, but as you read these opening chapters, the glory of God, which is uh, described with uh, apocalyptic kind of Im- kind of wild imagery as we had seen it of uh, cherubim and this this like pedestal raising up it's like his war chariot and the glory of god is on top and he the glory of the lord progressively moves out of the temple in these opening chapters and eventually 
leaves the city and goes up to the Mount of Olives and then is gone. And that's this vision that Ezekiel has that he gives the people of God abandoning the city. And when God abandons the city, there is no hope or protection. You are left all alone. And the end is upon them. The prophets had very interesting lives. They didn't just give the message by speaking, saying, thus says the Lord, as they often would. God also called them to do Sinax and some pretty bizarre things. And Ezekiel uh, had to do a number of things uh, that are a little strange. For example, in chapter 4, he was instructed to take a brick and lay siege works against it and sit on the ground. So he's just sitting on, it's like a kid building a little castle. So he's sitting on the ground and he takes this brick and builds siege work up around it. And then that's supposed to be Jerusalem. And then he's supposed to take this iron pan and put it right between him and the city and set his face against it which is the image of God setting his face against Jerusalem. And now God is like an iron wall that they cannot access, and his face is set against them. Another interesting sign act that that Ezekiel was called to do was to, uh, well, I'll read it for you because it's just kind of interesting. Let me be probably better for me to just read from chapter 4, verse 9. And This is the Lord speaking. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them during the number of days that you lie on your side, which was 390 days. So Ezekiel was instructed for 390 days to lay on his side and to make this bread. But the bizarre thing is he had to cook it over human dung human feces as a sign to the Israelites of what was going to befall them. And we, of course, we know they did that during the Babylonian siege, which was a multi-year affair where they're surrounded by the Babylonian empire and eating this defiled bread. And then they'll be sent to the nations eating unclean food. So in verse 13, the Lord says, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. A third example of of the kinds of illustrations that the prophets had to go through. Last time in Jeremiah, I guess it was two times ago now, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was uh, ordered not to marry. He was not allowed to be married as a sign against the Israelites. But for Ezekiel, the death of his wife marked the end, as, as it were, the divorce of God and his people. The, it marked the end for Jerusalem. And uh, we read in chapter 24, at the end of the first section, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. And now this is the hardest part. To put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. Yet you shall not mourn or weep. So he was forbidden to weep and mourn his own wife's death, who was the delight of his eyes. 
You shall not mourn or weep, you shall, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And all of this was to be a sign act to the Israelites that they would not have time to observe the ritual mourning rites for their dead that would be slain in the Babylonian siege. That when the destruction came and the walls came down, when the temple was pulled down and destroyed the very glory of Israel, they would not have time to mourn the dead because they would be rushed off into exile. So this is life as a prophet. And Ezekiel prophesied that God is destroying his city because it is defiled by sin. That's the reason this city is going down. And they had time after time and chance after chance to repent. But they just kept spiraling downward and downward in sin and rebellion. In chapter 7, We read through the prophet, Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. The abominations included abominations in the temple where they had set up what the Lord calls abominable images and their detestable things. God is going to take them down. It had It had gone so far that not only were they worshiping pagan gods up on the hills, the high places, but they were also erecting those images in the temple itself. You know, there was a time when they were practicing uh, uh, synchronistic worship, where they were worshiping Yahweh and keeping that, but then they were also covering their bases and, and worshiping on the high hills. But now they've just meshed it all together and brought all, and they've set up abominable images in the holy place of God. In fact, as the, the glory leaves the city of God, there's actually an image of the elders of the city bowing down in the temple court, worshiping the sun in the east uh, along the way. What direction? That way, right? I think doesn't matter. Anyways, they're, they're worshiping in the temple of Yahweh, the sun. And God is taking them down for it. The word defile is used 32 times in Ezekiel to dis, in 48 chapters to describe Israel's idolatry and sexual immorality. In chapter 16... It's quite a gruesome and uh, vivid chapter describing the Lord's faithless bride as a prostitute. In chapter 1635, we read, Therefore, O prostitutes, and now he's calling, God's calling his visible people a prostitute. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out, and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols. And because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, this is child sacrifice, which we've talked about before. 
Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman who commit adultery and shed blood as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And he says in verse 57, Now then you will have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despised you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. And so all of this came to pass. God kept his word in 586 B.C. when the walls of Jerusalem were finally torn down. The temple was destroyed. All the gold and goods of the temple were carried off to Babylon. And only the poorest of the poor were left in the land. Everyone else was taken into captivity. You know, as we think about how the Old Testament visible people of God were described. I can't think of a greater contrast to the estate of the church because of Christ. In the Old Testament, the people became a filthy prostitute. And in the New Testament, because of the blood of Jesus, the church has become a pure bride. You can't get more of a contrast And that's what God's New Testament prophets, apostles, were fighting for too, the purity of the people of God. Remember, as Paul is wrestling with the church in Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There is still the same battle that the Israelites faced then. It's still here today. That we need to strive to be a pure virgin to Christ, to be sincere and pure in our devotion to him. And that's still the minister of it was of Paul, the ministry of Paul, it's the ministry of ministers like myself today. And Christ cleansed the church with his word. Remember from Ephesians five, husbands are told to love their wives. And the, the example of a husband loving his wife is how Christ loved the church, how he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And the beautiful thing, no matter what estate we came to Jesus with, you know, I would encourage all of you unmarried to be virgins, save yourselves for your spouses, but sexual immorality is a reality whatever state your soul and body came when you came to jesus it has been washed clean by the blood and so the way that god views us is as a pure and undefiled virgin 
And so that's a miracle. You can't reverse losing your virginity. But spiritually, God can reverse it and make you a pure virgin to himself. And I think of the book of Revelation. It is chapter 14. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these, speaking of the 144,000, which is a picture of the church that God sees. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. They are called the firstfruits of God. All right, so Israel's estate is severe, and they went down for it. We've seen that God had to destroy the ancient city because she was defiled by sin. Let's now look at the second part of this message, that the enemies of God's city are not exempt from judgment. The enemies of God's city are not exempt from judgment. So we saw in chapter 16 that the enemies of God's people are going to gloat over the fallen Israel, which talk about embarrassing, you know, you know you're the people of God, and yet the enemies get a chance to gloat over you because of your own mistakes and your own sin. But while they're laughing, they won't be laughing forever. And that's the message of the second part of Ezekiel. And I'm not going to spend much time in here. I want to spend more time on the third point today. But there's going to be messages against Ammon, Moab, Seir, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, and Sidon, and Egypt. You can read all of those. You can see them in the outline. All the, the surrounding nations that were the, the, the great and historic enemies of the people of God, they are going down. So just as they see the Israelites wiped out, that is going to happen to them too. And that historically did happen to all these surrounding peoples as well. Even Pharaoh is going to be taken out. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up his own throne in Egypt as well as the Babylonian Empire takes over everything. And in chapter 32... The Lord says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet, and I will cast you on the ground. On the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. So the enemies of God's people will not be exempt from the coming judgment that is happening. And as we think about the greater picture of the enemies of God's people, we need to remember that we have had a mortal enemy from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we have someone who's been looking to slit our throats. It began in the garden. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Satan's been twisting scripture and deceiving people from 
the beginning. John Owen described Satan's work in two ways, that the enemy seeks to destroy the church and undo the glory of God, either by force or by fraud. If he can do it by force, if he can just force you, keep you from meeting, keep you from worshiping, put you to death, if you bow the knee to Christ, he'll do that. If he can't do that, he'll twist doctrine. Did God really say, is that really what the word says? And will twist and deceive and destroy you that way. And he's very good at his craft. Remember, the enemies, the other mortal enemies of the people of God. I mean, I won't mention the Old Testament ones because I've been preaching and walking you through all the historical books. You should know the Old Testament, but how about in the New Testament? Remember Paul himself before he was converted. In Philippians 3, he was talking about as to zeal in his former way of life, a persecutor of the church. So he, he was holding the robes of those who stoned Stephen. He was encouraging the destruction of the people of God and not just banning them from worship, but executing them in horrific and horrible ways like stoning. Even today, God's people globally are under the gun. And it's, we, especially if you're in touch with global news of the church, hardly a week goes by where there's not a church building burned down or Christians massacred or uh, leaders imprisoned as ministers of the word. We read in the global south and in China, in the Middle East, and in the West, Usually the, the enemy's tactic right now is either to deceive them with false doctrine or to malign them publicly and to try to shut them up. And all of this is building up to this beautiful illustration that we read in Revelation chapter 6 where the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, as John writes, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And that's our cry and our groaning as the people of God. How long will you let these public enemies work against us? But the reality is, friends, that all of these visible enemies are part of one kingdom. It might look like they're wearing different uniforms on earth, but they're all part of one kingdom, Satan's kingdom. The New Testament teaches us as much. I think of Jesus' words in Luke 22 when he's about to be crucified, and he says, this is your hour, speaking to his opponents, and the power of darkness. The New Testament refers to Satan's kingdom as the domain and power of darkness. Or Colossians 1, when we read about the gospel, how the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And this domain of darkness is powerful. It's why you as a 
as a believer, scratch your head when you see institutions like Yale promoting the most ludicrous research you could ever imagine, or Boston Children's Hospital uh, neutering children so that they can have gender. Tra- you know, it's, this is just stuff that boggles the rational mind. And the so-called institutions of earth are promoting these things as natural and rational and logical. It's utter delusion. This is the darkness that descends. It's not just that kind of physical hostility. It's the delusion of the mind and delusion of institutions. It's the darkness that it's the fog that is filling the brains of the so-called elite in our public and cultural institutions. Paul in Ephesians talks about the leader of this darkness being the devil. In Ephesians 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the spirit is not, not uh, there's not many spirits. There's one evil spirit at work. The demons, of course, are just doing the devil's bidding. But Paul refers to that spirit singular, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So from the dictator to the grocery store clerk, the one that rejects the word of God is being led and ruled by one spirit, the spirit as Paul says, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince and the power of the air. And they are, as Paul goes on, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the same enemy, even though they look different than the Babylonians, is the same enemy that we face today, which is ultimately the devil, who works through people, who are the sons and we could say the daughters of disobedience. But the good news is, just like Ezekiel preached the destruction of the surrounding enemies of ancient Israel, Satan's kingdom is going down as well. And that's the message of the New Testament. I think of Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And Babylon, which is the pinnacle enemy of the Old Testament, is used as the image of Satan's kingdom in the new. This imagery is carried forward, and we have this proclamation at the end of days, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And this is all going down. Revelation 19 In apocalyptic terms, we get this uh, description of the beast and the kings of the earth gathering against the people of God. 
And we read that after this battle, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. John, in fact, loved quoting from Ezekiel in the book of Revelation. John cites it. I, th- I put it in the description for you. But he, he alludes to Ezekiel at least 48 times as John in, in Revelation. I'm looking forward to getting that book with you. But it's showing how all of the Bible is fulfilled in Christ. And he's drawing from images from all the Old Testament prophets. And we have Gog and Magog which uh, we read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Gog and Magog become the symbol of the great powers of the earth. And in Revelation 20, we see Gog and Magog gathered. But then we read, fire consumes them. And they go down. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And in Revelation 20, we have the great white throne judgment where every person will give an account and that those who are not found written in the book with their name written in the book of life, which just means who aren't God's people, who didn't place their faith in Jesus, they are being thrown in the lake of fire too. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So friends, the mortal enemy of ancient Israel is the same enemy that we face today. And it's the same enemy that you face when you make the decision to follow Jesus or to reject him. Each day, you get up, you put your clothes on, you go to work, whether in the home or in the workplace, to do battle and to wage war against the enemy's kingdom. Whether that's rearing your kids or going to the work or both, of course, or being in theological institutions where the enemy is very present. See my brothers back here nodding. You get dressed to go to battle every day. And you must make the choice on, of whose side you're on. And many in Israel made the wrong choice and went over to the darkness and worshipped the gods of this world and were lost forever. But friend, just as Ezekiel shows us and the New Testament shows us, the devil's kingdom will fall. I want to turn now to the final point of this message about God's new city and to give you hope so that you can enter that city rather than to fall by the wayside with the rebellious who refuse the watchman's voice. So the third point is this. God's new city is the place where his covenant promises are fulfilled. God's new city is the place where his covenant promises are fulfilled. So we're going to look here at chapters 33 to 48, the final section of Ezekiel. And if you had time to study it, I'm just going to point out a few things. You will see that the heart of all of God's 
covenant promises are met in this new city that is described in this last section of Ezekiel. An Australian theologian by the name of Graham Goldsworthy describes God's covenant promises as three principles or three phrases. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's the heart of all the covenant promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, and so forth. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And we read about this fulfillment in this last section. And as an example, we will learn about how God will be the shepherd of the new city in Ezekiel 34, under God's rule. In Ezekiel 34, verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. No longer will there be false and wicked shepherds and fallen shepherds leading. God says, I myself will be their shepherd. We'll also read in Ezekiel, or we read in Ezekiel, that God's new city will be populated by those he raises to new life. This will be a resurrected people of God. And in Ezekiel 37, we get this vision of these dead bones on the ground. And God commands Ezekiel to speak to them. And as he does, these dead bones rise to new life. And they are, it's the symbol of the resurrected people of God. So out of the ashes of the slain shall rise the new and eternal people of God. Ezekiel 37, 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And this is this vision of the people of God. It's why the the old historian or theologians refer to the church as the church militant, the church that is at battle. The church on earth is the church militant. And we get this picture in this new city. God is going to raise up this army for his work, which is his true people. And we get that in Ezekiel. So God's people under God's rule. How about God's place? The third part of that trinity of the covenantal promises. In Ezekiel 37, we read the great promise that is repeated Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. 
And just as the horror was seen in the first part of Ezekiel with the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, in this third part of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord comes back over the Mount of Olives and comes back into the temple. And as a summary of the dwelling place of God, we're told in the very last verse of Ezekiel, and the name of that city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Yahweh is there. So what does this mean for us today? Was that, is this something for another uh, Israel, another Jerusalem that will come before the Lord returns? No, it is not. And the New Testament writers are clear on that. They tell us that the church is God's new city. The church is God's new city. These promises that come to pass in Ezekiel are fulfilled in Jesus. So in John 10, we learned that Jesus is the shepherd of God's city. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, in the personal name of God, Yahweh, as as most of you know, says, I will be their shepherd. And what a great defense of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus comes as the fulfillment, as the shepherd of God's people. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So check that box. How about the next one? We learn also in the New Testament that Jesus raises us to new life as citizens of God's city. Those new rattling bones are being raised to life now and they will be when the Lord returns. And I want to help you understand something about the resurrection. There is both a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. So when the Lord pours his spirit in you now so that you can see and believe, you are raised to new life. You're given that new heart and the down payment to come. But when the Lord returns, our bodies will be raised anew. And Jesus speaks of the twofold nature of resurrection in John 5. So it's a now and not yet reality. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In this text, we have both the picture of the spiritual resurrection that happens when you hear and you live, but also of the day when there will be the resurrection of the just and the unjust, one going to life and one going to judgment. Paul says the same thing about this now and not yet reality in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, so he's speaking Uh, in the perfect tense, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.
But Paul is not just speaking about a resurrection that is now when we believe, but also the one to come when he says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. Here's that city image again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we've got two boxes checked now from Ezekiel. Okay, Jesus is the shepherd and the church is the new people of God that has been raised to new life, like we read about in Ezekiel 37. Now the last box, Jesus' indwelling presence makes us God's city. Jesus' indwelling presence makes us God's city. John begins his gospel talking about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the word for tabernacle. He templed, he tabernacled with us. The presence of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. And we have seen his glory. That Ezekiel concept of the glory coming back to the temple. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we can even do more from the New Testament. That same glory that dwelt on earth in Jesus also came to Mount Olives and descended into the temple and descended to Jerusalem to be destroyed and raised anew that he might complete the work that God had given him to do to redeem us from our sins. So just as we have this image in Ezekiel of the, of the glory of God descending from the Mount of Olives back to the city, so we have Jesus on the Mount of Olives, the fullness where the fullness of deity dwelt, coming back into the city. And this city is glorious, friends. This city is not just a city for the Jews. It's a city for Gentiles as well. In Ezekiel 11, the promise is that I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And we can naturally think that's just for Jews. But when we go to the New Testament, we read in places like Ephesians 2 that we have been that God has made one new man in the place of two and that he has made us together as a Jew Gentile people as the church the dwelling place of God by his spirit the new testament expands the glory of what this new city will be like We are called fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And remember, the name of that city is the Lord is there. Well, remember what we read for our scripture reading today from Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. All of the promises 
that are made in Ezekiel, referring to God's people, to new life, to the presence of God dwelling, are fulfilled in Jesus for his Jew and Gentile church. And it's a now and not yet reality. We are raised, but we're waiting to be raised. We are in the city. You have come, but we're waiting for that city to descend in the new creation. It's the now and not yet tension that we live in. That's a really important concept for you to understand as you read the Bible and think about the Christian life. It is now and yet it is not yet. It's coming in part. When Jesus returns, it will come in full. But the question I want to leave you with this morning is will you heed the watchman? Will you heed the word of God? You know, just as Ezekiel was a watchman for Israel, elders and pastors of churches are the watchmen today. And I promised you I'd, I'd, I'd go here at the end. But Paul, when he hands off the ministry to the Ephesian elders, they come up, Paul's on his way to Rome, and he knows his days are numbered. He's handing the ministry off and saying farewell to those churches he started planting. And how, what, what are the words that he decides to end his, his visible ministry with these brothers? He tells them in Acts 20, I want you to know and I testify today that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he goes on to tell them to be alert. So he's innocent of their blood because he declared the counsel of God to them. And when he says that, he is hearkening back to Ezekiel as the watchman. Because as long as Ezekiel gave the word of God in fullness to the people, he was innocent of their blood no matter how they chose to respond. But if he didn't give the whole counsel of God, he was guilty of their blood, even though they would still die in their sins. And so what you need to know, even though you come to this church, which I hope is a church that preaches the whole counsel of God and always is, and that's what I strive to be and to do. At the end of the day, you have no benefit from knowing me or knowing any minister that preaches the word of God if you don't make the decision to listen and to trust God and to believe in his word. You know, your response is summarized with repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. But it's also a whole way of life of striving to conform ourselves to the image of God, to maturity in Jesus. That's why we gather on the Lord's day. Our faith is uh, manifested by how we choose to live. So I want to be careful in how I say that in, in closing here. Uh, you are not saved by your works. But if the Spirit of God has made you new, he will give you the heart to believe and to desire to follow God. That's a sign that you have been saved. And so your choice is not merely to like tacitly say, yeah, I believe, but it's to take up your cross, as Jesus says, and follow him. To forsake your life in this world and follow him. There was no greater watchman for Israel than Christ himself and for the church than Christ himself. The pastoral ministry simply derives its derivative of Jesus' ministry to us. 
How will you respond to Jesus when he speaks to you in his word and by the preacher? Are you going to go like this? Or will you take it and be saved and be a citizen of that glorious city of God that Ezekiel spent his life preaching about and that we have seen this morning is fulfilled in Jesus? I beg you to heed the word, repent, and to believe and enter the gates of celestial glory. Let's pray.